that. If you're using the Bible in the pew, it starts on page 1087, John chapter 20, verses 1 to 29. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nails in nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I'd like to invite Jeff up and I'm just going to pray as he comes. Our loving Father, we thank you for this story. Even though it's so familiar, we thank you that you will speak to us tonight through your word and through Jeff. We ask that you give us ears to listen. Amen. Thank you, Mary. The Apostle Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 15, which we're not going to preach on tonight, that if Christ be not raised, then... We are still in our sins and our, our hope is futile. And that's the, uh, the essential nature of this story that's just been so well read to us that uh, it's so important to the very nature of the Christian message, the Christian church, the existence of Christians in the world that without this story we're hopeless. And yet, when you read this story, it's so unimpressive. There's no fanfare. I wouldn't have orchestrated or choreographed the resurrection from the dead this way. I wouldn't have involved so many fallible humans for a start. I would have taken over and just made a great display of this incredible event, but not the Lord. We have such a human story here that we have to step into it so we can understand ourselves amongst these characters and visualise the dynamic that is happening here. As it was read, you would have noticed that basically we have four small vignettes of remarkable things that are knitted together and they're interconnected in their logic and their theologic and they also are self-correcting they tend to correct false assumptions that uh, you could make in interpreting these passages. So this is rich theology in these four little narrative points. And as we've seen as we've worked through John's Gospel, the Lord delights to use common things and common people and common situations to speak again about the Old Testament hope which he fulfills. So you'll see he plays off some of these images as we go through. But the first we begin with this this rather traumatised woman, Mary, who goes to finish off the burial 
arrangements for Jesus. She comes to expect that, uh, as she saw where he was buried, that there would be a stone rolled in a groove that would lock in to close this tomb. But when she arrives, that stone has rolled and the tomb is open. And there she can see where he was laid, but there is no body. And she immediately assumes the most horrible thing has happened. She knows that the authorities and the best of the nation uh, despise Jesus. They concocted the worst charge against him and then had him brutally uh, killed. And now to add insult to injury, they're not even permitting him the dignity of a decent burial. Such a thing was sacrilegious to most even the Romans and the Jews, but it's happened to her Lord and she is incensed and so she runs back to the disciples to tell them the best news. They've taken the body, they, the, uh, these, these haters. I don't know where they've laid him. I can't see it anywhere. And Peter and John, not the whole crew, but Peter and John decide to go and uh, check out this tale. They suspect that maybe Mary is... Uh, filled with flights of fancy, that maybe her grief has got the better of her, and, but they better just go and check in state, in case. And, and they go, and one enters, and the other enters, and they notice the strangest thing around the slab upon which Jesus was laid, and that is these, these cloths, which would have been bound around his body fairly quickly with the spices for preservation uh, still aromatic in the air, but uh, they've all been rolled up and placed and, and the head bandage has been rolled up and placed separately. And so if Mary was right and this was sacrilege, well, these are very OCD robbers. They, uh, they have not behaved as robbers should. You'd be in and out and you wouldn't want to get caught. That's if you could um, you know, actually get access to this, this grave. So they have ruled robbery out, but they don't have an explanation. Now, this is important as a, legally important as forensic evidence of the resurrection, you could say. And one thing we know for sure is that, despite what uh, some of the scholars of a couple of centuries ago surmised, this event cannot be based on hallucinations or visions. If, if, the, if the Jesus that we see later in the story is a spirit, then his body should have been there. If Jesus was the hallucination of a, a woman at her extremities, psychologically, then that's just not how the human mind works. Hallucinations are involuntary. You don't prepare the ground for future delusions by prior deductions. You cannot control these things. And so this was not some prepared prop for the suggestion of a vision later on. Christian faith really is not a mystical vision. The garden tomb was not set up as lords to conjure visions or encourage us to hope for such things. That's not the nature of this faith. It's very much a nuts and bolts, warts and all, human physical event, this resurrection. Well, 
We move into the second vignette, and the vignettes sort of go from a group to an individual, a group, then an individual. And you'll notice in this first movement from group to individual that it's, it's, it's again, orchestrated by the Lord. He must have waited and noticed and noted the two disciples, his good friends, leave because he wants to have a private audience with this woman. Why does he want an audience with woman? this woman? Well, he has set up an object lesson. And when they leave, she again turns and steps into the, womb, into, the, into the tomb and there she sees the slab, but this time she noticed an angelic being at the head kneeling and at the feet kneeling. Ring any bells? In other words, the Lord has set up this, this object listen, this audio-visual demonstration of his ministry. And it should remind us, and it didn't remind Mary, of the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem where the sacrificial lamb, the blood of the lamb, was splattered to cover the sins of the people. Now Mary should have been on the inside track with that. After all, she is the one who Jesus appreciated her devotion in her life. She is the one you recall when they had the party for Lazarus, his homecoming after his rising, and and she bursts in with a vial of, of nard ointment. It is her superannuation policy. It is expensive. It's all she has to look forward to in later life. And she cracks it and pours it over Jesus. She sheds tears as she is shedding here, and she wipes his feet. And she is attacked by the mob who see this as grotesque waste, but the Lord upholds her and says, she understands my ministry. She has prepared my body for burial. Ring any bells? Mary? And so the angels ask her, why on earth are you, of all people, weeping? And she informs them because they've taken the body. She's just honed in on this theft concept. She can't lift her sights, lift her emotional sights any higher. And the Lord then asks her the same question. She hears the voice behind and she turns and he asks, well, why are you weeping? You of all people should, should understand that this was part and parcel of the great plan to cover the sins of the people. This is the Holy of Holies. The writer of the Hebrew picks up on this And he's trying to say that when Christ, he says in Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once more into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and bulls and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption. So Jesus is saying that that holy of holies in the temple was a scale model of this. It was the shadow, but this is the reality. That was powerless, but this is powerful. That had no impact. It was a covering, but this has had final impact. Reconciliation has been achieved. This was lost on Mary And she says to Jesus, not even recognising him because her assumption basis cannot conceive at this stage of arising, 
And she says, just tell me where you've taken him. She presumes that he's in some shed in the garden or in a shallow grave. Just tell me what you've done with him and I'll, I'll take him away. And her, her sorrow is mixed with anger and it's a one big ball of emotion and she's spitting chips at this point at Jesus, thinking him to be a gardener. Oh, he once was. A long time ago. But she sees him as complicit in some sort of collaboration here. And there's only one thing that will snap her out of this stupor, and it's the address from the Lord. And he says her name. No gardener knows her name. She must have just about got whiplash as she turned to see again. Mary. She hears her name and suddenly realises that this one lives, is her Jesus, and he lives. But you know, it's interesting at this point that even though she turns to see him, she's still working out of assumptions which are flawed. And she grabs him somehow or other. It's you, the good old Jesus, our rabbi. Notice the term? That's her horizon. This one is the rabbi return. Her theology here, her philosophy of what has happened, is really that this is just proving that miracles still happen. That God has done it again. That you can't keep a good man down. That Jesus has been raised like Lazarus. It's the power of God extended now to Jesus. And so we're going to go back to good old Jesus and the good days when he roved around. But, you know, if the Christian faith is based on that, that is not the gospel. It is meaningless. And Jesus' life would go on as an endless Greek cycle myth, evading arrest like the Scarlet Pimpernel, being chased, arrested, even killed again, raised again. But it means nothing. It's simply an endless cycle of interventions but not this death. And our faith is not religious enthusiasm. It's not belief, believing that miracles can happen that makes you a Christian. But it's a meaningful death here. It's interesting that the, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says that you know, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, that's not how we think of him now. We, we, we thou now... Think of him as the one, as he explains in the next sentence. He says, Mary, go to the disciples and tell them that I'm ascending to the Father. In fact, he doesn't call them disciples. He says, go to the brethren. That's a new thing. He's never called these people brothers before. Now we have an intimacy so that I'm ascending into heaven. He is kitted out for his exaltation. You can't drag him down and hold him as the concrete Jesus of Nazareth anymore. He's now the Jesus of heaven. But he's deliberately in this interim phase where they might see that this one truly lives. This is the centre point of the great drama of salvation history. And they have to understand that this Jesus was the dead, resurrected Jesus, and that implies that we're not returning to normal viewing. 
He is heading elsewhere to his proper place and his proper status. And that changes our status from mere disciples and followers to ones who God regards as his own children. That's new. And he says we can call God Father. Well, no one ever prayed to God in intimate terms in the Old Testament like that. But this is new. Something meaningful has shifted. There's been a phase shift in the way that we dwell with God. Well, meanwhile, Mary does go back, takes this message, but it hasn't really sunk in yet. And the message gets a little lost in translation. And she goes back in verse 9, and it's on the same day, and she goes to the disciples and, and she, she carries the message and she announces, I've seen the Lord. And he said certain things, you know, about brothers and fathers and stuff. And, you know, <laughs> she says certain things that he said. She doesn't really relay the message. And then the disciples, as they, I don't know what the disciples do during this time. They are for fear of the Jews keeping their heads down and the doors locked. You know, who knows how long they would have stayed there and for what purpose? Just evasion. Until the heat cooled down, who knows? But then they're there. Mary has dropped off her message and they're sort of thinking, yes, Mary, um, but they don't want to go back to the tomb. They've done enough spectre hunting for a whole day. And they just leave it there and they're conversing amongst themselves and another voice joins in the conversation. And imagine that moment when the breathing, heat-emitting body of Jesus suddenly is manifest beside them. And Jesus addressed and rests their shock with this sandwich of salutation. On both parts of the sandwich, he says, peace be with you. And he's not just saying, howdy doody, you know, in a Jewish sort of way. He's trying to suggest that this is a new state. God's peace is on you. You are reconciled with the holy God. And the middle of the sandwich explains how that happens. The middle of the sandwich is just a demonstration of showing him his side, his hands, his feet. And you see, that's the means of peace. That's what he's trying to say. This reconciliation is through this. This stuff in the middle is not out of place. This is not an accident. This is not the world getting away from God. This is God's doing this stripes by which I have healed you. This is his doing and it's intentional. And as they're stunned with this news, this gospel in audio-visual form, in the form of the body of Christ himself, as they're taking it in, he's got to impress upon them that this is not just a secret message for a secret society. This is not something they just store to themselves. It changes their, their whole status vis-a-vis the world. 
He says, just as the Father sent me, now I'm going to send you. Just as I was the instrument of revelation for the world, particularly the Israelite world, now you're going to fulfill that function. You, (laughs) strong, motley crew, that's your responsibility. And you'll be equipped for that. He then says, in an enacted way, second thing, he breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. Now, it's a little bit of a pun because the Hebrew idea of the Spirit is the same word you use for breath. And Jesus is basically saying, have you ever recalled where, what he might be playing off there? When has God breathed on someone in the past? In another garden, in a hopeless situation, he took a dead body. And then later on you could go into Ezekiel and the race of Israel that is breathed on. But now... He breathes on these people. And what he's saying is that as you go into the world, instrumental in revealing Christ to the world, you yourself go as the new paradigm humanity. This is the new creation in which God's Spirit will enliven you to make you adequate. You yourself are the demonstration of the power of the gospel. That an astonishing thing. This breathing demonstration sets them up for being human race, Mark 2. And that's what we go into the world. We bring to the world, not ourselves, but ourselves as a demonstration of the miraculous breath of the Creator God. And then he says a third thing. He says... What he talks about, sin. He brings morality into it. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. And and that's because for for Christ and for God, for the Creator, creation, we mustn't think in, in reductionistic materialist terms that it's just about atoms and photons and gravity and time and space. But creation is much more than that. Creation is the orderliness of God. Creation has a coherence. It has a moral grain running through it. And so what he's saying to these people is that your role in the world is going to have a prophetic function. You're going to be speaking against the world because you love the world. You're going to be standing for the content of God and the reordering of the world according to his design. You know, the world sometimes hears the church speaking about morality and just cancels it. doesn't matter. That's our job. We're the voice of God saying, this chaos, this disorder that you live in was never intended. God does not bless it. He has something better, and that's the nature of his lordship. He doesn't just send the church into the world to improvise, to make it up as they go. He sends them into the world to restore the world to the way he intended it, because he loves the world. And he doesn't want them to live in the misery of their own constructions.
which are really their own destructions. He wants the world as he intended it, and some. Well, in the middle of this story, uh, a week later, we're in the same room with the same crowd, but Thomas had missed all that. We don't know where Thomas had been. His nickname is the twin. We don't know if there's another twin. Maybe he just had a doppelganger somewhere that looked like him. But Thomas, uh, he's probably the best theologian amongst them. And he's made of sterner stuff. He's not going to be satisfied with stories of visions or spirits or apparitions, no matter how excited people are. Thomas doesn't lose his head when the crowd loses theirs. He's a differentiated person. And so he basically sets some pretty good terms. If you want me to believe in the physical resurrection of the physical Christ, if you want me to believe that reconciliation actually has occurred, then the proof I lay down is I want to see those hands, those feet, I want to see the the, the hole in his side. Nothing less. Same Christ, if this Christ lives. It seems like it's not long after he's got those words out of his mouth that someone was eavesdropping the conversation. And that person, again, is manifestly present, now unconstrained by the rules of this world, heading on the way to the next world, he has some unfinished business with a challenge from one of his blokes. It's proof you want, Thomas. It's proof you'll get. And Thomas, see my hands, see my feet, touch my side. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Thomas can't respond quicker. And an involuntary brief note of worship, the most pure note of worship comes from his mouth, my Lord and my God. He can say nothing more. This one is not just his rabbi, his friend, Jesus the Nazarene. This one is his God. This one calls the shots as Lord. Jesus says, Well, that's something, Thomas. But I'll tell you what, if it's a blessing, it's even greater. It's a blessing on those who will believe without that sort of tactile evidence, who will believe without sight. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Folks, that's you. Jesus that night sends into the cosmic ether of the Spirit a blessing which if you have seen Jesus as your God and you bowed the knee to him and said, you call the shots, it's because he pronounced that blessing that night. And it's coming to fruition in this moment, in this day, in your life. The book of John, I think, was intended to finish around that point. He has a couple of extra sentences he adds on, which we didn't read earlier tonight, deliberately. I read them now. 
Jesus says, now John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. You know, the remarkable thing about Christ and his gospel, about Christianity, is how unremarkable it is. He doesn't say, you know, you'll have to go on a pilgrimage every 10 years or at least a couple of times in your life, or you'll, you'll have to flog your body or you'll have to work out how you can meditate until you can open the gates of heaven. And No, it's this gift of sonship, of reconciliation, of peace with God, of the punishment for your sin taken, of the cleansing of the blood is all ours by that simple action of belief. It becomes ours. And that affects our destiny. That if Jesus was our Jesus dying in our place, his rising is our Jesus rising in our place to our future place. And that is certain. He becomes our prototype that we will rise to. And I don't know when... But simply by the act of believing, that switch has been flicked. One day, I don't know when, you'll lay your head down for your last sleep. You'll stop in your tracks and you'll lay your head down and you won't have any more consciousness of life. But then that state will be punctuated by the sound of a voice that's calling your name. Calling you up to your exalted state as the brother of Christ and the son of the Father, the daughter of God. I want to assure you that that's what our Easter is about. That that is certain as Christ has risen. That at some point in your life, you have simply uttered to, to this Lord in your consciousness as Thomas did, my Lord, my God. You've acknowledged him. Your destiny is sealed. What an incredible thing to have in front of us. We don't lock ourselves away in fear as a secret society, but as the people who are headed as the new creation to our exaltation. And that day when we see him face to face. Let's pray. Our blessed Lord, living Lord, the Lord who hears our challenges and our doubts, the Lord who hears every word from our lips, the one who is present tonight by your spirit. Speak into our hearts and assure them of our sonship and our eternal destiny 
And by your spirit, drive us out into the world with the confidence we should have as the people who are the new creation, the new humanities, born into union with the new Adam who lives and reigns. Set our feet on a new course, Lord, with confidence and the certainty of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. For your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeff.